We'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans, the 13th chapter. And we'll continue our study of the Christian and government. The Christian and government. It's taken us a few weeks to work through these verses, and for good reason. The Lord, in His providence, has brought us here uh, in perfect timing and perfect wisdom. To look at this passage on this week, and I think you'll know what I'm talking about as we simply read this this, uh, paragraph. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And those who have opposed will receive condemnation among or upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good and you have praise from the same. For... It is a minister of God for you, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this... You also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. One of the ways that I am trying to grow as a son of God, the older I get, is the way I recognize and respond to God's sovereignty, specifically His providence, specifically the curveballs that I feel have been thrown into my life that were outside of my desire set, certainly beyond my desired expectations. This has been a lasting impression on me since our study of Romans 8:28 many many moons ago. God is always working. Do you believe that? God is always working. God never takes a nap. He has never taken a day off. He's never late. And God never misses any opportunity to glorify himself. While shepherding his people. You know, we often hear people say, I just heard it recently attributed to, uh, by an unbeliever. Well, I know everything happens for a reason. Is that true? It is true. But it has a particular application for believers. Remember, we looked at it very in depth. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that God causes, what's the next phrase? All things to work together for 
good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Do we really believe that? Now, I bring that up just not humorously, but providentially, because we are studying a passage before us on this Sunday without any planning on any of our accounts. Now, I'm aware that there will be some who are listening to this recording weeks or months, maybe years after this day, and I know that's the case in our modern world. But I also am aware that for us, this day, studying this passage on taxes, comes the week that we come to pay our taxes. That, my friends, is no coincidence. I didn't plan this. It is so good for my heart, honestly. If I can just be personal with you, my wife and I, Got some very bad news on our taxes. And it has caused me to have to make some adjustments. It's caused us to have to make some different plans financially. And it's caused me to look at my heart, which has desperately needed an attitude adjustment in writing a check in addition to what's been taken out. This is group therapy, if you didn't know that. I just need a little little love. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands for those who will be writing checks. I just remember when I was 18, getting these, these felt like a, a return of more than I'd made that year. Those days are gone. What's your theology of the government? Do you have a theology for taxation? Do you have a theology for your representatives and your mayor and your senators and your representatives and justices on the Supreme Court and... The person who sits in the Oval Office. What is your theology about government? Because God, wanting to give us a comprehensive worldview, did not leave that for our own intuition, but has clearly, in these seven verses and others, said this ought to be your attitudes and your actions as a believer toward the government. Now, let's remember this for a second. When Paul wrote this, he was not thinking about Americans living in a representative republic. In fact, he was thinking about people living pretty much as slaves underneath dictatorship. And yet he still says what he says. He understood the government under which he lived. He was very aware that the state could be unjust. As we looked at last week, you need to remember that the very founding of the Christian faith is founded upon a governmental misjustice. Right? Was the cross right to execute an innocent man? Was the cross just? Was that the application of the government that ought to happen by killing An innocent man? No. So Paul's theology of the government and the early church's theology of the government was forged in understanding, get this, that God uses the government, sometimes unjust as it is, God sometimes uses the government to bring him particular glory and glories that we would never imagine. 
So the next time you start to make a Facebook post or tweet some thought or have some argument, just remember what the early church did. I can't see in a world of Twitter during the time of our Lord's death, somebody tweeting, can you believe they let Pilate and his boys get away with this? How did the early church respond? They didn't respond by pushing back against the government. They responded by understanding its role and responding as believers. Listen, living in a temporary world under temporary rulers, living as citizens of an eternal king who will one day rule the universe. As of this point in time, he has delegated... The rule of this world, remember Ephesians chapter 2? He's delegated this rule to evil forces. Does that mean he's not in control? No, no. It means because of the brokenness of the world and the result of our sin, he has let it play out, not even entirely, but we know in the great tribulation, he will take away the restraining power of his Holy Spirit and it will get even worse. He's delegated the prince of the power of the air certain limited rulership in this world. And that includes our governments, plural, all over the world. And he's instructed us how to live in such governmental constructs. We said for the last few weeks looking at this passage that we live in just a tsunami of information. No one at any point in history has gotten the news faster or more of it than, than us. No one in history has gotten as many perspectives of the news and what's happening in our government as us. All you have to do is flip back and forth between two or three channels and you can have diametrically opposed positions on the exact same action of people in our government. Is that not, is that not true? Completely different ways to look at it. My question from my own heart is how do I look at it as a believer? Not as a member of a political party, not as a person who wants to necessarily change everything, but a person who has been called by God to live in the world that he's called me to live in. Remember, this passage applies to those living in Saudi Arabia right now. This passage applies to those living in Sudan right now. This passage applies to those living in Israel right now. This is not just for America. So these principles are worldwide universal related to a believer's understanding of God as king delegating his overarching rule to the enemy of our souls in this world and his local rule by country and state and smaller municipalities to men who are not always, not always looking out for our best interests. I grew up in a very political home. We occupied so many dinner hours talking about what was wrong and right with government. I remember my, my father sitting me down and watching me, making me sit down and watch uh, the resignation of uh, President Nixon and saying, this doesn't make sense to you now, but you're going to be glad you watched it someday. I kind of like politics. But when I look at why, I'm not 
entirely enthused by what I find. I think it it trips that same nerve in my in my heart that one made me want to go after school and watch a fight in junior high. It's that same part of my brain that gets activated. How do we respond? Well, you have an outline there because our PowerPoint is not working here. Uh, you have an outline there in your um, uh, sheets, your song sheets. You can go over the end and, and see the, the whole outline of how we're breaking down this passage. We're going to review point one because we've already done that in the last two weeks. And then we're going to move quickly through the last two points and subpoints. We're looking at three Christian responses to governing authorities. Three Christian responses to governing authorities. Let me briefly re- remind you of what we looked at in number one. Number one, ruling authorities are to be obeyed by Christians. We have an obedience relationship with the government. Ruling authorities are to be obeyed by Christians. Why? Verse 1, because they are established by God. Verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. So let's review what I've already given you the, the answer to in the introduction. Who's in charge of this world? God? Is that the right answer? Yes. Is the, the enemy of our souls, is Satan the prince of the power of the air? Is he exercising authority over this world? Yes. Are the governments under which we live and under which every person on the planet lives exercising control on this earth? Yes. How can those be reconciled? Because God is allowing, listen, he's allowing ungodly, unprincipled governments to exist for his glory that we might not even understand. And certainly to expose us as lights in the darkness. Because we don't respond to the government like unbelievers do. They're established by God. Look, no authority except from God. You can... You can come the night before every presidential or a congressional or a local uh, vote anytime and look someone in the eye and say, I know exactly who's going to win tomorrow and bet the whole farm on it. Why? Because you know who's going to win, right? The one God wants to. No one has ever won an election and no one has ever ascended to a throne. King, no tyrant has ever made his way into the ruling position in a country Without God's sovereign permission and, more than that, his sovereign establishment. Now, that brings up a theological question. What if you had a wicked ruler in a wicked country? How can we say God established that? It's very simple. God has used, read the Old Testament, even the kings of Israel. He used wicked kings as points of judgment on his own people. Why would we think he does anything less with unbelieving nations? So it's within our theological understanding to say that every ruler is established by God, even, even wicked ones. Can, can your theology handle that? Will your theology sustain that? Because it's not that God is ruling. Listen, God doesn't have any national flag in his throne room. I remember I grew up in a church that I believed, metaphorically, I believed that God basically had an American flag by his throne. 
And that's just how I felt. Because this was the kingdom. Pilgrims thought, we're going to come and we're going to make this the, the millennial kingdom on this soil. And we need to save and redeem America. I remember we had revivalists who would come in and preach those messages for a week. And I would get all fired up. We need God to save America. God is interested in saving individuals. And the American experiment, which is only a few hundred years old, may or may not continue to exist under his sovereign permission. They're established by God. And we are, Philippians 2, to do all things without grumbling or disputing. No complaining. Secondly, they carry out the authority of God. Verse 2, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. That's it. To resist governmental authority is to resist God's authority in that realm. Does that mean that we have to agree with, vote for, or approve those that, things that are, that are uh, not right and immoral in our government? Not at all. But we're not the zealots. We're not the... Um, uh, uh, the insurrectionists who, who, who build rallies and try to change by force so that unbelievers go to hell with better moral constructs but not knowing the Savior. They carry the authority of God and those who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. I have to remember that when I criticize and I complain about the government. I don't want to receive condemnation from the Lord himself who has allowed the governing authorities around me. Number th- or a third reason here is because they are ministers of God. This is going to come back in a moment in our text. They're ministers of God. Rulers are not the cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. It's really simple. Do what's right. Most governments will honor that. Do what's wrong. Most governments will punish that. There are exceptions but it's a general principle that can be applied. That brings us to number two. Ruling authorities are to be honored. Have I skipped something? No, it is number two, right? To be honored by Christians. Ruling authorities are to be honored by Christians. Hang on, I'm going to look at your... Yeah, we're okay. Okay, just making sure. Why are ruling authorities to be honored by Christians? This is a question you have to ask. This is a really important question to ask. Why? Verse 5 is going to tell us because it is necessary because of consequences. Because of consequences. Hmm. It's necessary to be in subjection, verse 5 says, not only because of wrath. Stop right there. Whenever we meet the word wrath, that raises all sorts of questions in Romans about what wrath is. Mostly when Paul uses the word wrath, he's talking about the wrath of God. I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about here, is the wrath of God. I think he's just talking about the wrath and the consequences of the government. There's, if you speed and you get a ticket, you have to pay. If you commit a felony, you go to jail. It's simply a way to say that punishment is a God-given deterrent for wrongdoing. And by the way, there's lots of parenting implications here. Think about that. God has established a rule that consequences given because of bad behavior 
are to constrain and change us to not do it again. And let me say again, the implications for parenting is pretty obvious. Ruling authorities are to be honored by Christians. Why? Because they have the ability to give us consequences. But secondly, because of conscience, and this is really important. I want to make sure our consciences are actually turned on because of conscience. He says in the middle of verse 5, but also for conscience' sake. It's so easy in a world that allows us to vote, in a country that allows us to vote and and, uh, put our own representatives and and, and, uh, nominate and uh, implement some laws, it's tempting for us to suspend our conscience Because we think we're sovereign. Let me say again. We ought to be as involved in a political process as our government allows us. We get to vote. We get to run for uh, office. We get to put up propositions. Praise God. Let's exercise what we can under the umbrella of God's allowance in our country. But I'm also aware that people are preaching this passage all over the world this morning in Situations and areas where where they don't have that privilege. He says you do this because of conscience. Question is, where is our conscience when it comes to the government? Now, what, what do we mean by this? When we say conscience, do we know what's right? Because what's right is seeing God's rule implemented, but... We're never going to see the kingdom of God fully implemented in in this world and this time, right? Knowing that, we still have a conscience to obey and honor the government. We honor governing authorities because our consciences are sensitized by the Spirit of God. I have to remember this. To turn my conscience on every time I want to complain about some governing authority... That I really enjoy complaining about. Are our consciences enlivened to the reality that we have an accountability before the Lord? I think of the flow in Paul's mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's amazingly practical here. We're going to dive in a little deeper here because it's really, really interestingly practical. He says... Have your conscience enlivened. Honor the governing authorities. Make sure that you are in a position of esteeming them and not rebelling. Make sure you're in a position of praying for and not complaining about. And then he goes here. Where is conscience and righteousness for a believer often tempted in looking at the government? Paying taxes. So look what he says. Beginning in verse 6. And now we find our third, our third point, our third uh, response, Christian response to governing authorities. Number three, governing or ruling authorities are to be rendered taxes by Christians. Why? Why do we render them taxes? Now we're going to drill down a little bit. First of all, because... Authorities are servants of God. Because they are servants 
of God. Verse 6, we go back and visit something he's already introduced to us. Because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God. Why do we pay taxes? Because we're paying to servants of God. Can I just tell you this last week? I have had to preach that to my own heart. You ever had this thought, why do I want to pay taxes to a government who's going to misuse my money? Use it for wrong reasons. Use it for unrighteous things. Wouldn't I be better to not fund their sin? You ever thought about that? They're rulers as servants of God. Devoting themselves to this very thing. That's the execution of justice. That's also being a servant of God, whether they know it or not. Back in verse 4, we already met the government as a minister of God. Now we find it's a servant of God. Even the IRS is a servant of God as well. There are several Greek words Paul could have used here for the word taxes. But the one he uses is in reference to a conquered nation who paid tribute and tariff. In other words, these are unwilling payments. Can anyone identify with that? Unwilling payments to the government. I'm just working on my own sanctification today. If you... If you want to ride along, you're, you're okay. You're welcome. A conquered nation paying exorbitant, unfair taxes to a conquering nation. That's the word he uses here. Ruling authorities are to be rendered taxes by Christians because they are servants of God. Now we find it, verse 7, letter B, because authorities are due, they are owed Taxes. Here it is. Of, of anyone's Bible who I've ever looked at, you look through and you, you find this verse. I've never found this highlighted with an explanation, exclamation point in someone's Bible. Said, yes, this is a practical verse. A verse. This is my life verse. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. If you could have turned on the evening news where there's such a thing during Paul's day in the Rome during the week that the Romans received this letter there in Italy, you would have probably seen videos of groups all over the Roman Empire in Rome all the way through Greece, down through Palestine, extending up towards Spain around the corner in Croatia, you would have seen videos during Paul's day of riots over taxes. We know this because uh, Tacitus, uh, an ancient historian, tells us that during this time, in his Annals uh, uh, 13th book, he tells us that there were common revolts and riots against Rome because they charged exorbitant taxes. I tell you that to tell you displeasure over taxation is is nothing new. This is not something that Americans have a unique uh, repulsion and revulsion against. So Paul's instruction 
not only to submit to the government, but to pay taxes willingly is nothing short of remarkable and amazing. We read this. This is in our Bible. We've known this is here. If you're reading this letter for the first time in a house church written from Paul, sitting in Rome, doors locked, hoping not to be discovered, and you're reading along, and you're reading the wonders of the glories of, of Romans 8, the, the, uh, the, the salvation of Israel in 9 through 11, the great application of sanctification in Romans 12, and then you would have heard this read in chapter 13 and gone, whoa, this is counterintuitive. No one lives like this. There is no other document, get this, no other document, religious document, within hundreds of years of Paul's writing of this letter that has anything similar to encouraging a religion's adherence to obey the government and pay taxes. This is uniquely Christian behavior and uniquely Christian in attitude. Now, where did Paul get this? Where did Paul get this attitude and this admonition? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Jesus had a lot to say about taxes. Matthew 17. You know the story well. Matthew 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? There was a tax in that area that was paid by everyone. Peter says, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll taxes? I don't want to go into it right now, but a poll tax was an interesting tax. You paid lots of taxes for lots of reasons. You know why you paid a, toll, a poll tax? Because you were alive. This is, you've heard of the death tax. This is the life tax. You're alive, therefore you owe this tax to Rome. From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said this, from strangers. He's talking about who, who really is, is owing this tax to the government. Implication, we're from a different kingdom, you're the king. Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, he's basically saying, this, you're really exempt from owing honor to these, to these governing authorities, except, and I love his word, however, verse 27, so that we do not offend them, stop right there. Jesus is about to explain that a Christian's obligation, fulfillment, and attitude in paying taxes is, is at the heart of his testimony, her testimony. So that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook. Now, what's interesting here as, as a fisherman, by, by the way, does, does Peter know a little bit about fishing? He didn't say throw in a baited hook. By all indications, the, the text here basically says throw in a, a hook. Take the first fish that comes up 
And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel money. Take and give it to them. How much was there for you and for me? So this week, I have been fishing all week. (laughs) What's the point here? Jesus is saying, taxes, just pay them. It's not a big deal. I've got other matters. Don't let the taxation trip you up, distract you. Now, that's the cool little coin in a fish mouth lesson. Keep going over to Matthew 22 and we'll find the harder lesson. Matthew 22, from the lips of the Lord, which I think Paul has in mind when he's teaching this section, Romans 13, he says, Matthew 22, Tell us, then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? This is the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus again. They're basically saying, who's your allegiance to? We know that Caesar is extorting us. And it's not just that. We don't have time to go into that. It wasn't just that Caesar was extorting. The tax collectors were doing that. Let's say you owed $100. They would collect $150 and pocket $50 themselves. Sometimes they would collect $300 and then pocket the $200 themselves. Jesus, though, in verse 18, he perceives their malice, their unkind, mean intentions. And he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Tell you what, I love this. Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. I have a denarius. I've seen it. And I can verify what's on the denarius. He said to them, whose likeness, whose picture and inscription is this? So just picture, it's like picking up a nickel and showing them Abraham Lincoln and saying, who is this? Who is this? He shows them the coin. They said, well, it's Caesar's head. It's Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and... To God, the things that are God's. Jesus is affirming, drumroll, Jesus is affirming that money is really not our possession. It has Caesar's inscription on it. It belongs to treasury. That's why you're not supposed to destroy money in our culture. Now, does that mean that you can't have private property? Not at all. Just read the Old Testament. There's lots of laws governing that. What he is saying, though, is Caesar is the one who issued these coins. Therefore, he has the authority to cause you to pay taxes to Rome. And you know what Jesus says? Do it. Do it. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Now, in this context, and to God the things that are God's, what are God's? In this context, attitude, disposition, priorities. These Pharisees believed that it was a noble thing to resist uh, taxation. Remember the zealots? 
Simon the Zealot. These were the people who were making a living by rebelling against Rome primarily because of their unjust taxation. They were trying to trap Jesus to make him choose between obeying the government or obeying God. And Jesus says, obeying the government is obeying God. Wow. Listen, there is no verse in the Bible, not one, that sanctions a believer's non-payment of taxes. Even if they were excessive. Even if you knew the government was going to use your taxes for unrighteous, scrupulous purposes. I mean, think about this. Jesus is saying, pay Caesar. Pay your taxes to Caesar. Do you know what Caesar was like? Did Jesus in his omniscience know what Caesar was like and what Rome was doing with those monies? Did he know what the tax collectors were doing by extorting the people they were collecting from? Did Jesus know this? The answer, of course he did. Did that cause him to try to bypass the system though? No. You know what part of paying taxes, what part of paying taxes does to us? Is it makes us deprioritize money. And that's always a good thing. And just when you thought it was pretty hard, he turns up the volume, Paul does. Back to Romans 13. This third reason to honor or render the taxes is because these authorities that we're paying, they are due respect and honor. They are due respect and and honor. Now the word render here in verse uh, 7, render to, means pay. Pay them. But it's more than simply paying your taxes. Paul says you can pay your taxes and be square with the government and still be disobedient, unrighteous, non-sanctified in your heart if it doesn't affect your attitude. The end of verse 7 you render taxes to whom taxes are due, and then he goes deeper. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear or reverence, respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due. These three couplets are all about our inner respect of authorities. Let's break it down. Custom. Give custom to who custom is due. It's another word for taxes. It's another, there's a, there's a multitude of words for different kinds of taxes. Customs means just that's what you owe. Go ahead and do this in a way that honors the government under which you live and do it in a way that honors your reputation as a believer. Fear, fear to whom fear is due. This is respect and alarm. It's not just respect. It's also giving fear, alarm. You get, Give a reverence to the government that you understand what they're capable of because they're given this power by God. And then honor. This is the hard one. An attitude of humble submission and due respect for their office. You honor them. 
Can I say again, and I'm not trying to point anyone out or beat anyone up. I'm, I'm just dealing with a reality that's pervasive in our culture and even in our church. Let me encourage you in how you talk about the government, how you describe and discuss politics, how you post and interact on social media about the government and politics, that you are providing honor to them, not because they're good men and women, but because they are appointed by God. What does a Christian announce to the world when we just complain about the government? What are we announcing? We don't trust God who put them there. It strikes at the heart of our attitudes, our conversations, our complaints, our social media. Now, if you're biting your tongue or the inside of your cheek, I get it. But can I give you a resolution of this whole thing? You have to see this with your eyes. John chapter 19. John chapter 19. You have to see this. Because this is the way you resolve it. You know this passage very well. John chapter 19. Jesus before Pilate. I want to read you the context. And then let's hear from our Lord about his understanding of government. Okay? Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Cat of nine tails. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him Slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This was a righteous judgment. Pilate said, There's nothing this man has done that deserves punishment of any kind, much less execution. So Jesus then came out, the Antonio Fortress there, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him! Crucify! And Pilate said, Well, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I, I find no guilt in him. Jesus answered him. This is amazing. This is between Pilate and this crowd. And Jesus starts talking. The, the Jews rather start, start accusing. And Jesus is going to talk. We have a law. And by that law he ought to die. Because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore when Pilate had heard the statement. He was even more afraid. He entered the praetorium and said again to Jesus. Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? So this is what I was saying. Now Jesus talks. And Jesus answered and says, You would have no authority over me unless this authority had been given to you from above. Jesus submitted to an authority 
that was going to crucify him. We won't take the time at this point, but in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 28, Peter and John applied their theology to the governing authorities, looking at the cross and saying, Look, it was by the hands of ungodly men that the Lord was crucified. That was predetermined and predestined in the mind of God. In other words, listen, listen, listen. The government can do nothing that God in His permission does not allow. We keep saying it. God has never said whoops one time in His eternal existence. Or uh uh-oh. Or I didn't see that coming. Or elbow in the angel. Do you see what they're doing over there? There's never been a moment like that in the existence of God. What happened at the cross should be the governing principle in thinking about our governing authorities. So how should a Christian look to the world and his or her attitude toward the government? How should we do it? Can I just give you four little, four little practical points that, that I wrote from my own heart? I'll share them with you. How should we respond? First of all, number one, we should trust God. We trust God and His appointment to government. We trust God and His appointments to government. No matter who's president, no matter who's in Congress, no matter who's at the podium, no matter who in anywhere in the world, we trust that God is still in control. What do we tell the world when we're in despair about the government? Secondly, we do not believe that hope for mankind is from men in this world. We don't believe that, do we? Do we believe we are going to legislate the millennial kingdom into existence? Evil men will proceed from bad to Worse, let's let's check our expectations. We do not believe that hope for mankind is from men in this world. Third, we care more about our eternal citizenship than we do our temporary citizenship. Political citizenship. In other words, our passion is devoted to our citizenship in heaven, not what's going on on earth. Look, you can care about what's going on on earth, but not more than we care about souls, about the gospel, about people being saved from their sin and having hope in Christ forever, not just for the next four or eight year term of some ruler. And then lastly, this builds into, we believe that hope for societal problems is the good news of the gospel. We believe that hope for society's problems, societal problems, is the good news of the gospel. Think about this. If we elect the best people, if we get the best principles, if we have the right regulations, if we vote in the right laws, and people still go to hell, what have we won? What have we won?
living as a faithful citizen of whatever country we find ourselves in means living as a faithful citizen to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the President of all Presidents. I'm convicted by this passage. And I have seen in the mirror of my soul way too much care, way too much energy expended in fretting and in caring about things that that I really have little control over. Vote. Write your congressman. Pass laws. Send lobbyists. It's within our law. Great. But if that derails us from our mission as Christians, I think we're missing the whole point. So, how's your theology of government? How's your theology going to be this week when you send off something to Uncle Sam? Well, if you're like me, we probably need our attitudes adjusted by the truth of the living God. And that's why he's brought us to this providentially this week in this passage.